The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. The Nobel Prize, the Oscars, the Grammys, the Emmys, the Tonys, Time Magazine's Person of the Year, Entrepreneur of the Year, the Pulitzer Prize, the Booker Prize, bestseller lists, the Hall of Fame, the greatest of all time. From global recognition to national recognition to industry recognition to sales or long service awards to high school valedictorians to kindergarten prize givings, we live in a world that gravitates towards recognizing greatness. Everywhere you look, Achievements are being celebrated, and as they are celebrated, values and aspirations are being shaped. Nobody really wants a participation ribbon. We want first prize. We want significance. We want recognition. We know we can't get it at everything, but we want it at least at something. Today we return to our series, Follow the Sun. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be focusing on verses 30 through 37. We've been making our way through this gospel, and we've recently seen some really important moments. Jesus' disciples finally recognized who he was, the Messiah, the Christ, that is God's chosen king. And soon after that, three of those disciples saw his divine, radiant glory unveiled on a mountain. They knew that they were in the presence of greatness. And they were his closest associates. Surely that meant that they themselves were positioned for greatness beyond their wildest dreams, beyond the wildest dreams of fishermen and tax collectors. Jesus had been saying some things, though, that were unexpected and confusing, saying that he was going to suffer and die and rise again. And he was saying bewildering things about what it meant to follow him. And he had much to say about greatness. Jesus' disciples lived in a world where it was just as clear as it is in ours who was recognized and who was significant, and their values and aspirations had been shaped accordingly. In his commentary on the passage we're about to focus on, James Edwards contends, at no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply from the way of the world than on the question of greatness. That's a massive claim. And it means we need to pay close attention to this teaching because it is sure to confront us in a similar way to how it confronted the 12 disciples. So let's listen carefully then to Mark 9, 30 to 37. This is God's holy word given to shape us in the image of his beloved son. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing? On the way. But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called 
the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. This is a challenging passage. It really confronts a lot that's in our hearts and in the world around us. A lot of it confronts our aspirations and our hopes and our dreams and the things we want to pour our energy into. Please help us to hear what you're saying. Lord, we desire to walk in ways that please you and walk in ways that are truly great in your sight. So help us, Lord, to be shaped by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In this passage, we see a situation that we've seen once before and that we'll see one more time in this book. Jesus predicts his passion. His disciples display their blindness and he corrects and instructs them. Their debate about which of them was the greatest became the occasion for him to continue to patiently teach them how the Messiah's mission must reshape their aspirations. And what Jesus teaches here applies to all who follow him. Jesus' messianic mission must revolutionize how we think about greatness. Because the disciples have not understood and embraced Jesus' mission, they cannot understand how following a Messiah such as him is going to upend all their ambitions. But his path must become their pattern if they're going to represent him and share in his true greatness. And, the fact, and, and that fact has not changed for followers of Jesus. Jesus' messianic mission must revolutionize how we think about greatness. I want to unpack this passage and look at how it must revolutionize our thinking and living under four headings. The path spotlighted, greatness debated, greatness upended, and greatness reevaluated. So let's begin then. The path spotlighted. For most of human history, countless conversations have taken place while walking. It's not hard to see why. The kind of transportation that some of us enjoy these days is still very new. Tento Turbo has been the standard for most people for thousands of years. So if life involved going from one place to the next, that was best done with company, and it was a perfect occasion for extended conversation. So here we see Jesus and his disciples in conversation on the way back to familiar territory, to the region of Galilee. But this conversation was not chit-chat weren't merely passing the time or discussing current events. And this journey was different from other journeys Jesus had made with these disciples. Galilee, which was the geographical center of Jesus' ministry activity in the first half of Mark, as we looked at it, was not his destination on this trip. He was only passing through. He was not looking for reception there. He was actually trying to avoid attention. He didn't want those same crowds that he had welcomed and served in the past, healing their sick and teaching them and casting out demons to know that he was around. And the text tells us why. He was focused on something that he considered more important at this juncture. He wanted uninterrupted time to teach his disciples. You see, they were now on their way to Jerusalem, 
We're told that in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, so you can glance over to there and see. Jerusalem is where what Jesus has foretold, what he is foretelling in this passage in Mark 9, and what he'll foretell one more time in Mark 10 will take place. He is walking steadily and purposefully towards being delivered into the hands of men who will kill him. He's going with both eyes open towards his death and resurrection. And he wanted his disciples to understand the mission he had embraced, even if they would only see it clearly in retrospect. So as they walked, he shone a spotlight on the path ahead. Now, if you've used mapping applications on your phone or through a website to get directions or to plan a route to go somewhere, you'd be familiar with the way those applications highlight the roads you're going to take to get to your destination and the particular places you're going to go through. Jesus was doing something similar, highlighting the path that he was on and what he would go through. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. The way Mark reports what Jesus was doing indicates that he didn't say this once. He stayed on that theme as they were walking. And this time, Jesus speaks of his path in a slightly different way than he did the first time. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. It's a bit of a play on words, emphasizing how the Messiah in his humanity would serve humanity by subjecting himself to death at the hands of humans. He says he'll be delivered, which can also be translated handed over or betrayed. Now, th those other translations would make you think that what he has in his mind is what people would do to him, Judas or the Jewish leaders or even the Roman governor who would deliver him over to be killed. But the language here actually reflects Isaiah chapter 53, where God delivers the suffering servant over to death. So more than likely, what Jesus is doing is alluding to God's plan in delivering him into the hands of men as a sacrifice for sin, a plan which Jesus himself fully embraced. But why is Jesus going to such great lengths to protect private time with his disciples to spotlight the path ahead of him? Edwards shed some light for us. The Passion Prediction announces not only Jesus' impending fate, it is also an exemplar of the life of service to which he calls the disciples. Now, we've heard this once before already in chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus' disciples must embrace his path as their pattern. But up to now, none of his disciples has even embraced what is going to happen to Jesus much less to have recognized the implications of his path for them. And just because we know all that happened to Jesus in Jerusalem, that doesn't mean that we understand the implications it has for us as his disciples. We too must learn by watching him closely and listening to him closely. That's why Mark wrote this gospel for us. Our text in verse 32 points so that the disciples didn't understand what he was saying and they were afraid to ask. Perhaps they remembered how Peter had been rebuked when he challenged Jesus previously. Or perhaps they had been conscious of their spiritual dullness and were reluctant to express their ignorance. Whatever the case was, the extent of their blindness is about to be painfully made clear through an argument they would have among themselves while walking. 
But just before we look at that argument, there's a question we need to consider. If Jesus was kind of going through this teaching as they walked and emphasizing this, why couldn't the disciples hear what Jesus was saying? I mean, he wasn't teaching them in parables anymore. We looked at this before, but it's well worth refreshing our memory about it so that we can empathize with these poor fellows. This comment from Mark Strauss explains it well. Two things about his statement would have been incomprehensible to the disciples. First, the Messiah would suffer and die. He was the one who was destined to establish an eternal kingdom of justice and righteousness. Second, the Messiah would rise from the dead. The resurrection was viewed in Judaism as occurring at the end of time, when all the dead would rise and be judged by God. The resurrection of an individual within history was outside their worldview. Jesus' rising was not in their view. What they were looking at, though, was the potential for each of them to rise and rise above each other. Let's look at verses 33 and 34 under our second heading, Greatness Debated. When they got to Capernaum and settled unnoticed into the house where they usually stayed, Jesus asked a question of, uh, Jesus asked a question sorry, of the disciples. What were you discussing on the way? I mean, it's a simple question, isn't it? But particularly if you're a parent of younger children, you know that simple questions are often answered with silence. What's that you have behind your back? Not one of them was prepared to let their hands show. Apparently, in addition to listening to Jesus' teaching, the disciples took some time to drop back a little bit and have a side discussion, a full-out argument between the 12 of them about which of them was the greatest. If you can remember this sort of argument, hopefully from your childhood and not from very recently, then you can probably imagine the sort of nonsense that they were saying in their attempts to one-up each other. So, which of us do you think is the greatest? I mean, it's, it's obvious. I'm the eldest. Right, so how come I'm always the one who's speaking up for all of you guys? A lot of good that did you the other day, Satan. I, I, I mean, Simon. Well, he trusts me with the money. You guys forget the mission trip so quickly, don't you? I mean, casting out demons, healing the sick. None of your stories stacked up against mine. And you forget that it was two of us on that trip, not you one. You guys know that most of you aren't even in the runnings, right? He didn't take any of you up on the mountain with him, did he? Now, faced with Jesus' question, they surely were too embarrassed to even say what they were arguing about, much less to give Jesus a blow-by-blow. Blow. But Jesus wasn't looking for information. Mark makes it clear that he already knew what they were talking about. He's seeking to draw them out. No, they were all replaying the conversation in their minds, and he would take this opportunity to teach them. Now, at first glance, it might seem quite childish to you for 12 grown men to be arguing about who is the greatest, but culture is a powerful thing. It might strike you as childish for a grown man to fight another grown man or, and to feel like he must fight another grown man because he stepped on a shoe by mistake. But culture is a powerful thing. William Lane comments, The dispute over greatness shows how impregnated they were with the temper of their own culture, where questions of precedent and rank were constantly arising. Strauss adds, In the unashamed culture of the first century, boasting was considered necessary to confirm one's social status in the community. 
And now the disciples had more temptation than ever to boast. You see, these men from very humble beginnings had realized from the start that Jesus was someone special. But they had recently recognized that he was in fact the long-awaited king. And they were his closest associates, his trusted companions, his entourage. But why settle for being one of 12 when you could be the guy, the right-hand man, second only to Jesus? This is why it was so important for them to understand Jesus' messianic mission. You see, the disciples are still thinking and behaving as if they were following Jesus to his coronation rather than his crucifixion. When you think about it some more, constantly ranking ourselves and overt boasting are not at all foreign to Western culture in general or our own culture in Jamaica. Professional wrestling like the WWE can dedicate entire programs not to actual choreographed wrestling, but to boasting before the fact. And if that hits you as a little too testosterone-driven, think about beauty contests or how many shows are dedicated to comparing homes. In hip-hop, you have rap battles, and in dancehall, you have clashes, and R. Kelly had countless graduation classes singing that they were the world's greatest. (laughs) Think about the shameless self-celebration that we saw from some of our politicians in our election last year. Our culture is not that different to theirs, and our hearts are definitely not different from theirs. At the root of the argument the disciples had on the road, at the root of all of our one-upmanship, is pride. And that's important for us to recognize. Some of us might not think that we're much like these disciples because we couldn't imagine ourselves getting into an argument like that. We might not openly crave accolades and honor most of the time. And if we're being quite honest, we don't think much of those who do. Quietly, inside, We think that that's what makes us better than others who think they're so great. And that too is pride. C.J. Mahaney, in his very helpful and challenging book, Humility, says, Pride takes innumerable forms, but it has only one end, self-glorification. The proud person seeks to glorify himself and not God, and thereby attempting, in effect, to deprive God of something only he is worthy to receive. Whether we're glorifying ourselves smugly in our thoughts or humble bragging or broadcasting our achievements on social media, the heart is the same. And what we see here is how pride leads to rivalry. Isn't that what's at play when we are comparing ourselves to others? But if we walk on the path of pride, God is committed to opposing us, to standing in our way. In his holy hatred, he will not stand for what John Calvin describes as the sacrilegious arrogance of those who, by praising themselves, obscure his glory as far as they can. You see, God is the glorious one. The only true glory we can ever attain as his creatures is a reflected glory. So Jesus will revolutionize these disciples' understanding of how greatness is pursued, showing them how imitating him is the path to true greatness. Let's consider greatness upended. Look in your Bibles at Mark 9, verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Do you know what's truly surprising here? Jesus doesn't reprimand the the disciples for their selfish ambition. He doesn't scold them for their desire for greatness. 
He doesn't rebuke their ambition. He redirects the same ambition. He renovates it. He refits it. He entirely upends their understanding of greatness. He doesn't dismantle the notion of hierarchy. He flips it on its head. He doesn't say, yo, guys, stop jostling for position. He says, if you want to jostle for position, this is how you do it right. In fact, what Jesus says here is an invitation to ambitiously pursue true greatness. Recall what he said in chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He was not discouraging the pursuit of being first any more than he was discouraging his disciples and the crowds from following him. But in both cases, he was showing how counterintuitive and countercultural the way is and how great the requirements are. Jesus says if anyone would be first, he must be last. Must be indicates that this requirement is non-negotiable. There's no other way to be great in the kingdom of God. So even though it might be normal, natural, and sensible in this world to put yourself first, to seek to advance yourself, to promote and present yourself as best you can, to protect your time and resources for yourself, none of that will make you great in God's eyes. What we must do is voluntarily take last place, putting others first, seeking their advancement, promoting them and pushing them to the fore, lavishing our time and resources on them. That's what greatness in God's kingdom looks like. Jesus is revolutionizing our thinking and the pursuit of greatness, confronting the sinful brokenness of this world's system and our hearts. In this world, we put others on a pedestal for their wealth, business acumen, poise, physical appearance, charisma, talent, great achievements, dogged determination, even though they might be self-serving and self-seeking people. Jesus says, if you want to be great, you must be the servant of everyone else. What does he mean by a servant? The term has a range of meanings, including one who waits tables. It generally referred to someone who served at the, big, the bidding sorry, of a superior. But I think that what Jesus is doing is using a familiar term, an idea that these disciples would have seen around them in, for their whole lives in daily life, and filling it with new meaning and new dimensions by embodying it himself. We will see what Jesus means by being a servant by looking at him. He led by example. In Mark 10, 45, he said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the path to greatness that he lays out in Mark 9 for his disciples is one that he himself was walking his glory would be displayed in servanthood, suffering, and weakness. His greatness would be seen not in what he demanded from others, but in how he gave, how he poured himself out, and at its zenith for our redemption. And that's a reflection of his father, whose glory is seen in how he pours himself out and sustains his whole creation. Now, in correcting his disciples, Jesus provides an unexpected illustration. He takes a little child and brings him into the center of their huddle. Giving a child such a prominent position would have been very unusual in a Near Eastern culture. And he takes that child in his arms and says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him 
who sent me. Okay, so what is he doing? I remember a few weeks ago, the biggest reception on our live stream was for Vanna Grace, Vance and Jessica's little daughter. You guys even messaged requesting to see her again during that service. Now, virtually no one in our society would think that strange. There are ways in which we love children. We show our attention on them and we welcome them into our presence. There are ways in which we don't love children, but that's for another sermon. But our affection for Vanna would be very strange in the Roman world of Jesus' day. David Garland sheds some light. The point of the comparison is the insignificance of the child on the honor scale. Children in Jesus' culture had no power, no status, and few rights. Their vulnerability made them utterly dependent on others for survival. The saying about welcoming a little child means that those who want to be great should show our attention on those who are regarded as powerless and insignificant. So Jesus is presenting this child as a picture of one who is at the bottom of society's totem pole. And he's saying, do you know what greatness looks like in God's eyes? Giving attention to those whom the world see as irrelevant and unimportant. But he goes even further. He says, when you welcome others who lack status and importance because of me, I reckon that as you welcoming me. And if you welcome me, God will reckon that as you welcoming him. Now, if you find yourself a bit disoriented and blinking in the blinding light of Jesus' teaching on true greatness, I'd understand. But what we must do now is take a hold of it and shine it on ourselves and reevaluate our ideas about greatness. So our last heading is greatness reevaluated. What is it going to look like? For us to pursue true greatness. The impact of Jesus' teaching that I want to explore here for a few minutes is wide and deep. So, serving each other includes helping each other to see how God is calling us to deny ourselves by putting ourselves last and others first, and to serve even those who seem insignificant. Let's start with the children. Kids, when your mommy or daddy gives you chores to do or asks you to help, with a particular task. That's an opportunity to be great in God's eyes. Doing what you're asked to do as well as you can because you want to be a servant like Jesus pleases God. Looking out for ways that you can help even when you're not asked is even better. We adults know that one of the ways that sin twists our hearts is that we think happiness comes from doing what we want to when we want to. But that kind of happiness does not last very long, and God does not reward us for it. So one of the ways that you can pray, even at your age, is for God to give you a heart that accepts that serving is often hard, but enjoys serving others and being like Jesus. And that goes for us adults too. You see, what Jesus is calling us to hear requires heart change. That's why we need Jesus' death and not merely his example. He gave his life as a ransom to free us from our slavery to sin, to selfishness and pride, jealousy and rivalry. He gives us new hearts that want to and can pursue pleasing God. Hearts that are, that are able in faith to embrace the self-denial and suffering that comes with putting yourself last and serving others. Faith remembers that Jesus did so for us to the point of death, yet rose again. And faith is confident that since he received his reward, we will also. 
I want to speak especially to mothers of young children. We live in a world where women now have many more opportunities and options than they had in previous generations. There's still a lot that's broken, though, the effect of sin's impact on societal structures and our hearts. Here's one thing that concerns me. One of the messages women hear is that what it means to be great is to have it all. Great success in whatever career you've chosen for yourself and a picture-perfect family, if you choose. The pandemic has generated a lot of discussion and distress about exacerbated gender inequalities. In many cases, it's women who have lost jobs or have had to make uh, accommodations in how they work to take on the primary care responsibilities for children who are now home. The underlying assumption in the articles I've read is that child care and care of the home is a burden that should be, as much as possible, shared equally, and that greatness is pursued through your career outside the home. But equity is often not possible for a number of reasons. Sure, successful motherhood is celebrated in this world as great, but the sacrifices that come with being a mother are seen as undesirable. So the world says that women have been given a raw deal. But Jesus says greatness is putting yourself last and serving the needs of the least of these. Isn't that the fundamental shape of motherhood? Doesn't that mean that Jesus redeems and revolutionizes motherhood by making it into an arena for pursuing greatness in the eyes of God? Doesn't that mean that God has favored you by uniquely positioning you for greatness in his kingdom since he esteems those whose willing service is often overlooked? Doesn't that mean celebrating the sacrifices of motherhood is a witness to an unbelieving world? The endless tasks and the sleepless nights and the scant appreciation you get are real suffering. But if you do it for his name's sake, it is the path, the glory, and commendation from God. Jesus counts the attention and care that you give to your children as given to him and to his heavenly father. Take heart. You are the greatest among us. And this extends to wives who are not mothers, who anchor their homes, and to anyone who's a primary caregiver for a relative. And husbands, Jesus does not mean for us to stand by on the sidelines cheering on our wives' greatness as they do that all by themselves. We have to recognize that one of the reasons we can be so preoccupied with our work when we're at home is that it makes us feel important, and it is how we are pursuing greatness. By serving our wives and taking on more at home and giving them a break whenever we can, we will be serving Jesus and pursuing greatness. Giving undivided attention to our children counts as serving God. So what can help us is making it a priority by making time for it each day and setting clear boundaries for yourself. In other words, don't do it when you finish the work because you know we don't finish the work. So stop working, sacrifice the me time, and start serving in other ways. Here's one way in which I've been convicted about all this. If I think I'll achieve greatness through my work, then the people in my life, my children, my parents, my in-laws, my wife, the needy person who depends on me, become inconvenient interruptions to my pursuit of greatness, rather than those God has surrounded me with to serve. So yes, setting boundaries and guarding your work time is important, but welcoming interruptions after having done that is better. As a community, we have the opportunity to build a culture where true greatness is celebrated. It's one of the reasons that we try as often as we can to express our gratitude, both publicly and privately, to those of you who serve alongside us. I want to just thank the worship team this morning and the crew that's here, 
came early setting up. Thank you guys for how you serve. Some of you are doing it week after week. I know it can be awkward, but let it remind you each time that Jesus values your service even more than we do when you do it for his sake. As we grow as a church, we want to be on the lookout for opportunities that are in our reach to serve those whom others would overlook. I wanted to highlight just one example of service in our midst. Last week when the Taylors were away on vacation, the Campbells stayed in their home. Sean shared with me that when they got home, the house was absolutely spick and span. Sarah and Sheldon had tidied places that no one had thought to tidy before. Well done, Campbells. Thank you for serving the tailors, and thank you for modeling servanthood. Sheldon, the world might be impressed by the PhD, but in our eyes, this is what makes you great. There are so many other areas this teaching from Jesus touches. All I have time for now is to fire a few more questions in a few different directions. Yes, I'm going to do this. All right. So, so buckle in. Stay with me. How does Jesus' teaching challenge glory-seeking on social media? And call us to seek to serve others instead. How does it affect how we approach celebrating personal milestones? Are you eager and ready to expend great effort to celebrate yourself? How does it affect the way you approach your job? Are there simple ways you can push back against prioritizing self-advancement by looking to serve others and help them to progress? Or are there ways to champion celebrating the contributions and the achievements of others? How does it affect how you choose a career or how you help your children or even friends to think through that choice? Do we encourage them to position themselves to be great in the kingdom of God? Or do we tell them to prioritize financial security? How does it affect how we think about worthwhile pursuits in retirement? Time does not permit me to explore this any further, but I want to encourage you to be deliberate about engaging in conversation with others about pursuing true greatness in the coming week. Eternity will begin for believers with a performance evaluation and an award ceremony. We'll all be judged according to what we've done, and our deeds will be tested by God to determine their true quality and value. How you will fare in that moment will be determined by how you respond to Jesus' teaching. You can live your life for a good peer review in the eyes of the world and for accolades that will be forgotten and awards that will disintegrate. You can live to satisfy yourself and distinguish yourself based on your own assessment. But Jesus loves you and is calling you to a better path. He embraced his messianic mission, his path of humility and suffering in order to serve us. He died in humiliation, but he rose again, and God has exalted him to the highest place as the greatest of all time. He has rescued us from the wrath we deserve for all our attempts at self-glorification that obscure the glory of God, the only one who is truly great. And he means to redeem every moment we live by calling us to follow him on the path to true greatness, to commendation and a crown from God. A path of humble service to all those around us and welcoming those whom the world deems unimportant. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus' messianic mission must revolutionize how we think about true greatness. In the kingdom of God, your ability to seek greatness in God's eyes does not depend on your age 
or your material resources, or your talents, or the type of opportunities you have, or your stage of life, or your education level, or your network of contacts. This week, you can humbly pursue greatness by serving others for the glory of God. And when you forget, when you fail, you can humbly pursue forgiveness and repentance and resolve to continue on the path of humility that Jesus walked for us and invites us to follow him on. May God help you to receive his grace, to obey his will for the sake of his great name. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.